0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to Typhoon Talks, a podcast by Typhoon Consulting, a boutique management consultancy headquartered in Hong Kong. My name is Michael Grady. I am a consultant here with the firm. Coming at you with our next installment in our monthly news review series, where we take three topics from the previous month in the business, tech, politics, or on the uh, world economic stage and kind of discuss them and give our Typhoon house view. Uh, today we have a few very trendy and interesting topics, starting with the the Winter Olympics, a, a big move in the healthcare sector, and some of our thoughts on some of the recent uh, market mar- financial market movements. So Chen is going to start us off here with uh, some of the questions.
1: Yeah. So um, the one of the biggest things that is going on right now is about Winter Olympic Games. Um, The Pyeongchang Winter Olympic Games, as the first games held in South Korea in three decades, was held on um, the 9th of February. And in these games, uh, we see a lot of um, North Korea demonstrated a lot of soft power. Um, Kim sent his sister to South Korea to watch the games. And they invited South Korea over to have a meeting with North Korea. And two hours before the meeting with Uh, Vice President Pence they cancelled the meeting so what kind of image is North Korea going to send to the world? So you've
2: got two very different strategies being employed towards South Korea and towards the US and This is pure propaganda play from North Korea, but I think they've put out a very calculated a very Calm image to the rest of the world. I mean they're at the Olympics. All cameras are on them. This is being broadcasted all over the world. So North Korea have come across very, very calm in this situation, and I think this is in huge contrast to the U.S., who you've got Pence bringing um, Fred Warbier over to the over to South Korea, visiting North Korean refugees. He's um, stands by his policy of maximum pressure and has kind of positioned himself as a warrior against North Korea's propaganda which is a totally fair place to take and probably right but they come across much more reactionary and then on top of Pence you've got Ivanka coming to the closing ceremony which is interesting because that this is a real flipping strategy from the US you've got a much softer line being taken with Ivanka going um, she may have the same views as Pence but actually it's a very yeah, it's a soft play.
3: So, would you say that North Korea's won this game of chess or this particular episode?
2: Yeah, I, I mean, from a propaganda perspective, yes. And they are starting, I think, or yeah, have started to drive a wedge between South Korea and Washington. Even if they haven't driven a wedge, they've exposed big differences in what they want. You know, you've got Moon saying, yeah, I'll come to North Korea and have a meeting with you. Meanwhile, the US are totally on a different track. They're not ready for that kind of engagement yet.
3: And the South Koreans, so the Moon has seen his popularity plummet over the course of the Winter Olympics. So it looks as though this, because of the issue with North Korea. So do we think that, what do you think the end game North Korea in this particular episode is what do we think was going to happen once the the, the Winter Olympics comes to an end
2: I mean it looks like they're going to carry on this kind of strategy of trying to engage with South Korea but I don't know how far that will go if the end game is reunification they're totally deluded it it just can't happen at this stage because the two countries are so far away from one another but um, And on top of that, as you said, Moon's population is plummeting, and that's largely because young people in South Korea are never going to be part of North Korea. They just don't want to be. Even if it's a reminiscent dream amongst older generations, um, that hasn't filtered down for very, very obvious reasons.
3: So if we look back and we take a a look at what happened to the, 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 the Soviet Union, and how that eventually collapsed, and sort of Russia has been reintegrated into um, sort of the, the global um, economic and political uh, map. How long do we think? And that, that happened over, say, 20 years from initial discussions to the, the end and, and final fall of the, the, the Russian Empire. Do we think that we're looking at a, a, sim- a similar kind of trajectory? Do you think it would be accomplished shorter, or, even, or it would take even longer?
2: Um, There's potential that it will develop along this trajectory, but I don't think it's gonna happen in the short term. You've got Trump at the helm of the US, you've got Kim at the helm of um, North Korea. They're not calming their nuclear program. Um, And then you've also got China and South Korea in the mix, and I just don't think anyone is aligned enough at the moment for this to be, um, for the kind of trajectory of the USSR to be a short term reality so if we
3: look at the personalities, you talked about the personalities you mentioned kim and, and trump and obviously you know part of the reason for the soviet union sort of being reintegrated was because it was gorbachev and, and reagan mm-hmm. do you need to have two personalities who are going to be in play who are going to have a more conciliatory approach because obviously with north korea and the us at the moment you've got both very populist leaders people who need to feel as though they have control of the popular image in, in their in their respective countries so do are we saying that we before we see any real rapprochement then we're going to need to see a change I don't think we're going to see a, a change in leadership no. in, in in North Korea no. but does that that means we're going absolutely. to need to have a more conciliatory approach from not just the US but more from the west as well
2: yeah absolutely I mean you can't it's not going to happen with a president who's tweeting little rocket man fire and fury and all of this stuff to the whole globe it's just not going to happen there's going to be no conciliation um and i think if there is going to be conciliation there needs to be a clear drive and effort towards that it's not just going to happen and appear out of nowhere and at the moment that's absolutely not happening you've got kim obviously and then on the western side you've got trump and then you've got this, like, kind of Pence taking a very hard line at the Olympics. You've got Ivanka, who, even if she agrees with that hard line, is no doubt portraying a soft image. And then you've got this um, Munich security conference where they're talking about a war of biblical proportions. Like, there's no consistency here. And first of all, you need consistency for any sort of conciliation. And second of all, you need a leader who's going to drive towards that. And you, you just don't have it at the moment. And... I don't know if you're gonna have it in the short term, um, while they're all so while the ground is so uncertain basically, and I think that's the what the real takeout from the Winter Olympics is that I think it's ch- not ch- it hasn't changed the course, but it's definitely thrown uncertainty into the mix.
3: So I think, if just wrapping this up then on, on this piece, I think the interesting thing with the Winter Olympics is you've got a very finite, you've got a start and an end. So you've got, literally, you've got the rules of the mm-hmm. game being played. And we've seen the, the, the US and North Korea in particular look to play a propaganda game out under full view of the world's TV cameras. And at the moment, we would say probably, if we were going to award medals, then the US has probably got a silver, and North Korea has probably edged the gold in terms of the propaganda victory so far.
2: Yeah, I, yeah I'd agree with you, David. And as a final thing, this isn't new. The Olympics, has, in historical events, is always a Political, massive stage yeah. because it's a global scale. Um, and yeah, if you look to our articles, we ask whether um whether sport is war without the shooting, so yeah, that's exactly what you're talking about.
3: Perfect, great, Eve. Well, Mike, over to you and uh, and, and Freya for, for for have a look at some of the healthcare developments. Yeah, great discussion, guys. Um,
0: <clears throat> so, Freya, as our resident biotech and healthcare expert, uh, why don't you tell me about the the recent news that is broken about uh, the three corporate giants in the U.S forming uh or kind of just attacking the the affordable healthcare kind of industry and uh so it's amazon berkshire hathaway and jp morgan the plan is still pretty under wraps like they've just announced it at a high level but um what do you think about this what do you think about these these three huge companies at the top of the world attacking us healthcare
4: i think in terms of the impact of what they're doing i think the impact will be relatively limited but I think it speaks to, it's, it's indicative of a lot more. It's indicative of, of how strained the US healthcare system actually is and how there's minimal affordable healthcare. You know, insurance premiums are rocketing. Um, drug prices are insane. And I think the fact that these, you know, big US-based giants have come out and, and want to do something about it, Shows that um that the problem is is real and is really there.
0: Yeah, so it kind of shows how, if if these three got these three companies that, you know, none of them really have a stake or any, you know, pro, even product lines in healthcare exactly. are all coming out to yeah to fix a problem. It's got to be a pretty hefty one. Exactly. Then. Um, but yeah, I would definitely agree that the healthcare system in the U.S. is. To put it lightly, disjointed in the past maybe ten years, a lot of varying that policies ignited. and a lot of uh, yeah drug prices in general are an entirely other argument that have been a complete mm. farce with some, with some uh, companies jacking up the prices like we saw that the uh, the Martin Strakely saga where he was basically like completely legally exploiting the uh, the drug I forget what kind of drug was it it was like um, some kind of
4: it was HIV, was HIV, it?
0: Drug, HIV or drug or something like that? Yeah, yeah. it, it would basically yeah, jack the like, price up by 700%. When it went from
4: was, $13 a, a, like a pill to $750. The 750 or 50, crazy. Yeah, and I think that's was. the problem. I think the, that was because that was legal. Yeah. That is a, a key issue in like the US healthcare system and the US in general. Is you've got these big pharmaceutical lobbyists who have a massive impact on the way the US Congress deals with, um, with healthcare. So, I mean, that's a very extreme example, but there are lots of other examples of that like in a, in a much more moderate way. So companies you know extending their patents for for longer than they, than they should be just by changing like tiny tiny details of, of a drug that has no effect on, on what it does in the body but means they can keep being the sole producer of it and to prevent generics coming to the market. Um, generics are really difficult to get to the market anyway um, and massively you know, decrease the profits of, of the original branded drug. So, I mean, there's obviously an incentive for these big pharmaceutical companies to prevent generics coming to the market, but it keeps prices incredibly high for you know the average American. In terms of what um, this, you know, kind of three-way trio um, partnership is going to do, I I doubt how impactful it's going to be. I mean, they're so yeah, they've said they want to come out and you know tackle healthcare and and make it affordable for their employees. So um, they've got about between them one point two million employees, and so uh, what, whatever they'll be able to implement will affect about two point five million people. Uh, you know, including the families of the employees. Um, and compared to you know, the general U.S. population, that's a tiny amount. They don't have that much negotiating power when it comes to to dealing with you know, healthcare costs, whether it's pharmaceuticals or hospitals. Um, and I think the pro- like we've said before, the problem runs a lot deeper than that. It runs to like like the very fabric that the healthcare system is built on in the U.S.
0: As far as a like holistic funding standpoint, I think these guys will have more than enough to uh, to hire yeah. some of the, you know. The leading minds in the in the healthcare industry Absolutely. to maybe build something, but as far as you know, influencing the future of U.S. healthcare, I do agree. I I, I don't see it being you know some kind of this world changing thing like some people are selling it out to be. Yes, where you certainly. know the three brightest minds, you know Jeff Bezos is the richest person in the world. They're going to fix the healthcare. Yeah. And system. he's know, for
4: like d- disrupting. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Industries.
0: Yeah, is, sure. Is, but it,
3: is is this going to how important are the personalities in this? In going back to what we're talking about in, in yeah. the Olympics. We've got, as you said, Jeff, Jeff Bezos, the first hundred billionaire. Now um, <laughs> yeah. we've got uh, Warren Buffett, and we've got Jamie Dimon. These are three massive people in yeah. the U.S. economy. Look, as you say, looking you know, employees that they control over one million people in the in the American workforce. So, whilst obviously it's not going to change anything overnight from a U.S. healthcare perspective, is this more about sending a signal that? Again, something needs to be done, and this is a way that it can be done. And then, you know, it's the, the you know the snowball effect that what we then expect to see is other large, potentially larger large organisations rather than <coughs> sort of communities, but other large organisations. there's going to be an employer-driven um, approach because obviously it, it's important to, for employers to drive down the cost of private medical care for themselves as well. Mm-hmm. Do we think it's going to be something that's going to be driven by employers um, rather than obviously pharmaceutical or the state, for example?
4: Yeah, I think. I think you're definitely right. I think there might not be personalities as such. I mean, obviously, uh, Jeff Bezos is known for disrupting industries, and I don't think the healthcare industry is the same as any of the other industries that he's had an influence on. I think it's it's full of kind of innovation. It's 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 massive um, and and quite kind of unwieldy, um, and I don't think like any one thing is going to change it. But I think you're right in the sense that. Um, by these three big companies coming together, it does send a signal to both the Congress and also to other other employers, whether they're, they're similar size or, or a lot smaller. Um, and you're right; in that it, it makes sense for employers to want to drive down healthcare costs, and, and most of the U.S. Um, most of the U.S. population is in, is insured under their employers.
0: At, at the absolute basic level, like at least we're asked, they're asking the right questions, Absolutely. right? They're raising the, uh, they're kind of opening the market opportunity to other, you know, companies or whatever, if it's the U S government to make some kind of policy change. But, um, yeah, I, think it's, it's, I yeah. think it's
4: more what they're saying rather than what they're doing and the influence that I have yeah, on exactly. other
0: people. Like this isn't going to revolutionize the industry overnight, but as mm. far as, you know, on the biggest stage of, of these three per like from a personality standpoint is these guys have a lot of power in, yeah. the, mm. in the media, in the certainly mm. Warren Buffett and Jamie Dimon in the financial sector. Um,
1: and it's also the data they have controlled. So yeah, right absolutely. now it's only yeah. with their internal yeah. employees, but yeah. Yeah. with the data they can do a lot more in the future. And what
3: what would we expect to see? Obviously, uh, you know, nobody, big pharma, the health, big healthcare providers in the U.S. are not going to take this lying down. What kind of response would we see from them? Would they, would they, would we see sort of a, a truly competitive approach or combative approach? They'll 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 come out fighting, or do you think they'll sort of see that there potentially is um, a significantly negative impact to their business so they'll look to take a more of a compromise approach and do something jointly with, with these organisations?
4: I think that will really depend on what this trio comes up with. I mean, they, they really haven't released any information about exactly what they want to do. You know, there's rumours flying around that they'll just kind of create an online dashboard to put their employees in contact with, you know, the best doctors, make it easier for their employees to shop around based on quality, um, So, which kind of boosts competition. Um, and drives down cost, or you know they might use their muscle power to negotiate the, the better prices of, of drugs and procedures, and go at it in a much more kind of aggressive, combative way. So I think the response from the pharmaceutical industry is is likely to follow, based on on what they actually come
3: up with. Cool. In that case, thanks very much for it. I think in another one, which is wait and see. (laughs) Um, But I think it's certainly going to be interesting. Anything that Jeff Bezos does certainly sort of grabs the headlines. So I think it's uh, certainly going to be uh, very interesting to see what they come up with, you say, with a hard and fast plan in terms of what they're going to do. But uh, yeah, very interesting at the moment. Um, And our final topic this morning is something a little bit esoteric in financial markets. Uh, We're going to talk about the VIX, the volatility index. Um, and for those of you who know nothing about this or nothing about its impact, um, Mike will give a brief explanation shortly, but um, the beginning of February, unless you were living in a cave, um, then uh, there was a, a massive financial correction across most of the global equity markets. Um, and one of the impacts of this was to wake the sleeping VIX, which is um, the volatility, in- volatility index which measures the volatility, um, of, uh, share price changes. Um, and this has had some, some rather unintended consequences. So Mike, maybe you could sort of give us a little bit of an, an introduction to terms what the, the VIX is, um, how long it's been around for, what it measures, and then why it's been so important in the last few weeks.
0: Yeah. So, um, as, as, David, you're definitely right. Th- these are kind of, some of the, the terms I'm about to throw on are, are quite esoteric. And the, the VIX in general, um, while very fundamental to the market, it is a little bit difficult to understand. But at, at, at a highest level, the, the VIX measures aggregate volatility um, over what a lot of people say is the, um, the most accurate uh, market barometer, that is the S&P 500. The VIX was, I think, founded in 19... 19- no, 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 no. The S&P 500 was, was founded in, in 1950. The VIX was, I think, like two, early 2000s. Yeah, yeah. So what the VIX does is, is it tracks call and put prices um, of S&P 500. So S&P 500 options, the call and put prices. And in turn, it, it follows the uh, the options chain and prices of the SPY, which is the the most popular ETF that follows the, the S&P 500. But what I really like to talk about today is in the wake of this massive market correction, right? I think it was 10 to 15%. A lot of traders lost a lot of their capital, staking probably too much of their portfolio on the very famous that I wrote about in my article, uh, short volatility trade. So this trade I think is very fundamental to how you can understand what kind of drove this negative feedback loop of of this uh, this correction in the SPY is that in all of history of the S&P 500 and of the volatility index, uh, generally the, the market, it's, it's basically being short volatility means you're long the market. So if, if you believe that the market is going to grow, which it has, um, traditionally over the, in almost the entire history of the stock market, regardless of any kind of doomsday market scenario, you know, the, the dot com bubble, the, the, uh, the subprime crisis, um, et cetera, et cetera. It almost always breaks its all time high and it almost, uh, volatility almost always goes down to 10 points. Right in between 10 and 13 is a lot of uh, traders will say. So what happens is several hedge funds and prop trading houses will take huge positions, uh, what what we call short volatility. So it means that you're long in the market and and you're basically betting that the VIX, regardless of how high it's going to go, volatility in the market will will basically come down to that to that rock bottom, and you'll basically be profiting um, as the VIX drops back down to its to its. Uh, to its mean, as we would say.
3: There's a classic mean reversion. Yeah,
0: classic mean reversion strategy. If the VIX goes up to 50, it's always going to come back down to 12. So if you can profit on that, um, you're going to make a lot of money. So what happened in this specific correction is some of the trading tools, and I won't get too technical into this, mainly one of the the tools managed by Credit Suisse, um, which is one of the more popular inverse VIX uh, tools called the XIV, You know, VIX flipped around. it's basically sh- it's it's uh a inverse um i think it's unleveraged derivative of the vix that follows uh rolling short vix futures so if you were if you were uh if you were long the xiv in the past couple months you were you were short february and march uh expiration uh futures so essentially it's just it's just betting whenever the xiv goes up it means the vix is going down so it's it, a very vanilla short volatility trade and what happened is so many traders piled into this ETF and bought all of the units that it actually, um, and the, the volatility that this ETF experienced on its own drove the beta up almost to eight. So I don't know if, if uh, any of you guys are, are familiar with some of the, the, uh, the SEC regulation around leveraged ETFs, but the, the highest legal leverage you can use in an ETF is three. And while this ETF is unleveraged, a beta of eight basically means that for every $1 the market moves, that ETF moves eight. So it's basically trading like an eight times leveraged ETF. So when the VIX doubled in size uh, on, you know, what was it, February 6th or something, doubled to from 25 to 50, the XIV went down 94% from 145 to about 6. So you've got a
3: second order volatility play there because the VIX is measuring volatility. If you've got a beta, which is going up to eight, so it goes Mm -hmm. up eight times, then the magnification impact of an already large move is exponential in Absolutely. And I think that's one of the, the fundamental
0: problems of what we're talking about here, is that the VIX is supposed to be a market barometer. It's, it's you're not really, suppo- like, well, while you can, you can invest in options in the VIX, and you can speculate on the market using the VIX as a trading tool, you can't invest directly in it. Because in general, it is meant to measure those wild swings. So any person who was invested in the VIX would just get either blown up or make millions of dollars on every sell-off. Right? That's what options exist for. That's what futures on the VIX exist for. That's what these ETNs and ETFs exist for. But when you take some of these leveraged inverse type of products that are, that are taking these high risk positions using futures to speculate on the, on the, the direction of the market. Um, and then you just, you take, you know, hundreds of, of, of investors and hedge funds all taking massive positions in these um, on a unit by unit basis in these ETNs, like we're seeing here with the XIV. Um, and then you're in turn offering these products to everyday investors, uh, there's a lot of, a, a lot of potential danger for that everyday ignorant investor to get completely creamed, um, investing in, in, some of these, you know, the XIV was about 150. That that's not, you know, too expensive for, for, uh, directional exposure to the market. Um, so, you know, the everyday investors trying to get long in the S and P and you, 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 you read these credit suisse's leveraged etfs that promise amplified returns and unique long short exposure and you know they're at the same price as, as an etf like the vog that's a very popular vanguard's uh growth equity etf and you know one of them's moving 94%. like the vog went down 10% during the during the correction because it's it's just doesn't have as much volume it's maybe a little bit more hedge maybe a little bit more balance on the portfolio side or, or on the on the on the fund side but yeah, and, and I think one of the other one of the other problems is, and you guys can give me your uh, your opinions on this, is these ETNs are offered in the same bucket as normal ETFs, right? When I first started trading, when I was in college, you need you need clearance, right, to to trade on margin. You need clearance to trade options. You need clearance to trade futures. You need to take quizzes. You have to talk to a financial advisor. You have to prove that you understand what you're investing in. Um, and you know it makes sense in the derivatives market because you are using margin and with with certain, um options trades, you do need, you know, uh, enough in your account to cover your losses, because you can technically lose, you know, below zero.
3: You you lose more than the stake you put up. Yeah,
0: you lose more than the stake you put up, and you can actually have to put in more money, that's the entire, you know, if you've ever seen the movie Margin Call, but these, in my opinion, while they, they are ETN, so they are, you know, traded on the exchange, they're managed, you know, pseudo by the market. They have significantly higher risk, and the the like a beta of eight is absolutely unbelievable. And the fact that that the everyday ignorant investor, like I was talking to Eve the other day, who you know fully understands what ETFs are, right, <laughs> yeah. um, to a basic level, you understand, you know, that yeah, yeah. they're they're probably good for uh, to balance out your portfolio, et cetera, et cetera. But then you you know you get this little sales pitch from some like one of the other. Um, the other exchange-traded products called the, the TVIX, which is double-leveraged inverse using futures as well. And they then, in the fine print, they tells you that it's very, very high risk. But in very bold letters at the top of the the product summary sheet on Yahoo Finance, it tells you that it doubles your ampl- it amplifies your returns. It's it's um.
3: It also amplifies your so it returns or losses.
0: Yeah, returns. Yeah, that's that's what a lot of people don't understand is returns or losses. So. While Credit Suisse comes out and says, oh, you know, we didn't lose any money in the, in the volatility spike because we were hedged. Well, what about, you know, Joe Schmoe, who, who had half of his savings in, you know, uh, a, a position in the XIV because he heard from his buddy that short volatility
3: was the way to go? So I can actually imagine the conversations at Credit Suisse going, well, we didn't lose any money because we were fully hedged, but our clients took a bath but I also can imagine that there's large compensation payouts being paid because people will Absolutely. complain that they didn't understand or they were missold the product. Particularly in products, this is a very common theme, Is because they tend to be sold rather than bought. Um, and so when things go against people, particularly in significant scale, so if you lose 10%, it's a bad day. If you lose 95%, that's a very, very bad day. And particularly if you're selling structured products, people will be signing up for, this could be, on individual investors, this could be several million US dollars worth of investment. So this is not small money. Yeah. Um, and whilst they are educated, semi-professional investors, um, it is it will have wiped out a lot of people or significantly reduced the returns, particularly in a, a product which, is, as Mike's saying, is really used to measure the market, not be the market. And I think one of the things we've seen um, with with the VIX, is the VIX is now actually starting to drive what's happening in the stock market more broadly. So um, as the volatility increased, people started selling more shares, which then drives the price down, which then increases the volatility, and so you've got this negative feedback loop um, coming into play very very quickly. And if you unless you can get out very very rapidly, um, and a lot as again a lot of these things are structured products which take time to unwind, then you've basically got no safety net. Um, so, in terms of sort of just wrapping up on this one, Mike, then obviously we're seeing the volatility um, come down again. Um, so, yep. I would expect that a lot of people on the mean reversion strategies are sort yep. of are looking forward to, to cashing in on this. But if, if, as, a, as a lesson in terms of what's going on in the market, you know, what would we see these ETNs being issued again? Or do you think that Credit Suisse and other investment banks have learned their lesson?
2: Blackrock already doesn't offer them, right,
3: Mike? Yeah, one yeah. One of the things that I that I mentioned in my in my
0: newsletter article is that one of the most uh, one of the, the actually the the biggest one of the biggest asset managers in the country or in the in the world, uh, Blackrock, has been very fervently against these leverage inverse products because of the 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 danger they put investors in and how kind of. Uh, misnamed they are in the bucket of other ETPs and ETFs and ETNs, um, but I just think as a as a lesson, I, I don't think that these leveraged products are going to 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 vanish anytime soon. I think we could do to this these kind of massive swings and you know any any product in the market that sees ninety five percent swings during one market event uh, probably shouldn't have been there in the first place, but. I don't think they're going to vanish anytime soon. Uh, I think that there might be a little bit of a regulatory push from some, from the SEC or other. Um, as 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 long as these big asset managers keep keep pushing uh, some reform in either whether it's the documentation or transparency or uh, clearance levels, like I was talking about. Um, but I think what, what the what the key the point I want to make is you have to you have to understand what kind of investor you are, right? So you have to kind of understand the difference between a trading tool, which the VIX is, the XIV is right and an investment product if you actually want to get long the S&P you want to get you know short volatility there are better ways to do it than investing in a in a, a, a stock with a beta of, of 8 right and regardless of all the trading blogs like like seeking alpha name the XIV that's now dead it's number one stock of 2017 just have that go in one year and out the other like that's an absolute joke if, if you're really a long-term investor invest in some kind of balanced ETF if you're a little bit more aggressive invest in some kind of um, you know, growth equity fund or something, but don't start buying these leverage futures, uh, exchange-traded products that, that move, you know, $5 for every 50 cents, because you're, you're going to end up like some of the investors were in the XIV that probably lost quite a bit of capital in in, in one allocation. Yeah, so uh, that's, that's, that's all we have for today. Mm-hmm. Very, very good conversation, as usual. We've gotten very good feedback from these These episodes, Um, so we're going to keep doing them every month and stay tuned for our our accompanying newsletter with some of our uh, written thoughts and more of a uh, high-level kind of explanation of the things that we talked about today. Uh, So that's all the time we have now. Follow us on Twitter, at Typhoon Buzz. Follow us on Facebook. Uh, Tune into our iTunes. Give us a five-star rating and subscribe. iTunes.com slash Typhoon Talks. And tune into our website for our other research POV content. And you can listen to the podcast there as well. TyphoonConsulting.com. Thanks. See ya.